Hey everyone, it's good to have you back for this week's special episode of The Divine Lantern as we conclude our series on serving the community, presented by our Archdiocese's very own Khudiyas. With the blessing of His Eminence Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower and enrich. I'm Jonathan from the Antiochian Christian Orthodox Youth and I'll be your host for this week. In the final episode of our series, we'll be joined by Khudiyarita, We'll speak about ministry through music. We'll then take some spiritual nourishment from the Philokalia, celebrate a special date in the Orthodox calendar, and answer one of your questions, along with much more. So settle in and enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Pentecost to you and all your families. I would like to extend my deepest gratitude to His Eminence Metropolitan Basilios for his love and guidance and for allowing us the opportunity to share with you what the ministry of a Churie looks like within the church and for the Divine Lantern team for their tireless work. Not only are we a significant support to our husband's ministry, as Churie Mandy mentioned in the first episode, but are blessed to have many roles within the church that allow us to grow spiritually and connect with like-minded people. Furthermore, my sisters in Christ displayed many ways we can serve our community and support the Orthodox ministry, whether it's holding the fort at home, helping to feed the homeless, bringing our young mums together, or focusing on the education of our people. Each one of us has a significant role to play within the church community. May God bless us, my sisters in Christ, for your dedication, hard work and love towards your ministry. And may God guide us always to walk in his light. I am honoured to be the last speaker for the series Serving the Community. And I pray that you can also use your talents to help advance the mission of the church in our archdiocese. As the saying goes, many hands make light work. My name is Khuririta Mawal, wife of Father Jean and we serve at St. Paul's Church in Dandenong, Victoria. We have been blessed with three beautiful children, Katrina, Elia and Sophia, who all play a unique role in our family's ministry to the church. Many of you know that Byzantine music has been an imperative part of my life. My journey began when I was about 15 years old, serving at St. Nicholas in East Melbourne, or actually even as young as four years old, where people often remind me of how they used to see me stand in between my parents' legs while they served on the choir stand. I suppose like many children whom you would hear in the church trying to chant with the choir, I too would look up to those around me and would want to participate. So I'd probably have to say that it was through my parents' example I learned how to serve in the church. Let's fast forward a few years when I found my calling on the choir stand and learnt that serving in the choir was more than just chanting through the intercessions or Lord have mercy. To serve on the choir meant that I had to understand the liturgical cycle. I had to learn how to read music and I had to dedicate a lot of time throughout the week to ensure I was prepared for each service. Turning up to church on a Sunday without knowing which saint we were commemorating or what tone it was, was leaving an unfulfilled void in the ministry. I felt like I was on a mission, not only to learn Byzantine music for myself, 
but to learn the sacred art of the church for the generations that will come after me. I'll elaborate further what my ministry looks like now a little later on. But more importantly, a common statement I often would hear people say is, Khuriye, I can't sing. I don't have a good voice, Khuriye. That's why I can't join the choir. My immediate response to these statements would be, no, you don't have to have a good voice. On the contrary, you need to have a good ear so you can listen to those around you in order to chant as one choir and one voice. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, the meaning of the word choir is a group of people that sing together. So not one person, but a group of people. The music of the Orthodox Church is renowned for its beauty and the ability to put parishioners in a prayerful state of mind. This is the main role of the choir. Their job is to lead the congregation in prayer, to elevate the human soul from the earthly world to the heavenly, as St. John Chrysostom beautifully states, that nothing elevates the soul, nothing gives it wings, as liturgical hymns do. So what is liturgical music, you may ask? How has it evolved throughout time? And another question that you may be asking is why don't we use musical instruments in the church? Byzantine music is the medieval sacred chant of all Christian churches following the Eastern Orthodox rite. This tradition was developed in Byzantium from the establishment of its capital, Constantinople, in the year 330 until its fall in 1453. It is a combination of artistic and technical productions of the classic age and Jewish music, which was also inspired by vocal music that is sung in unison, which was used in the Christian church that evolved in the early Christian cities of Alexandria, Antioch and Ephesus. Byzantine music is purely vocal and exclusively monodic, which is a composition that has one part or one melody which predominates the hymn. The Holy Fathers of the Church ordained that Christians use the voice alone in execution of hymns, just as our Lord himself and his disciples did. St. John Chrysostom says, Our Saviour chanted hymns just as we do. But when you hear the following praise in the Great Compline Service, which is taken from Psalm 150, Praise him with tuneful symbols, praise him with symbols of jubilation, let every breath praise the Lord. You may wonder why we are being instructed to use symbols when in fact we do not use any instruments in our worship. The symbols that King David speaks about in the psalm is related to the church bells that are rung at the beginning of each church service. However, he continues that verse by reminding us that every breath should praise the Lord. Therefore, no instrument is grand enough to praise the Lord but our voice particularly as we know that musical instruments were used at pagan sacrifices and the church was keen to exclude such pagan elements from its worship. Our orthodox liturgical music and worship is unique and is greatly enhanced by a system of changeable tones known as the uchtoikos or eight tones. These melodies are used in conjunction with hymns related to a particular daily or festal theme or regarding a specific saint of the church. The eight tones came to be applied to eight week-long cycles of hymns, meaning we start with tone one and each week we rotate right through the eight-week cycle, bringing us back to tone one and so forth. Going back as early as the 6th century, these hymns were compiled into a book known as the Uchtoikos. 
which was systemized and edited in the 8th century by St. John of Damascus. The system of eight tones governs the hymns from the Ochtoikos, Festomeneon and the Triodion. These books contain the variable hymns throughout festal seasons, for example the Kentakian O Champion General, as it is chanted throughout the Great Lenten season. Each tone has its own characteristic and they can be defined as being peaceful, sad but consoling, enthusiastic but reserved, humble but heroic, simple but profound. Once you familiarize yourself with the eight tones, you will learn how to differentiate between each mode and will recognize which mode is humble but heroic, enthusiastic but reserved and so on. I won't elaborate further as this topic can probably be a podcast series on its own. However, before learning how to read Byzantine music or understand what the eight-tone system was, I remember we spent many nights sitting in the church with a tape recorder, listening to the hymns in Arabic, one line at a time, trying to fit the English words to the melody. I suppose you could say we were very dedicated and eager to learn the hymns in order to bridge the gap for our younger generation. That was my main focus. Years went by and Abuna and I moved to Sydney and I was privileged enough to study my first year of music at the Byzantine Music School at St Andrews Theological College. But what also supported my studies were the mentors that I had in my life. These three great mentors who during worship at St Nicholas Punchbowl would insist I stand between them and the notation books and following the service would then give positive instructions to help my growth. Returning to Melbourne, I continued to develop myself until the opportunity arose to establish a Byzantine music school dedicated to St Ephraim the Syrian with the blessing of his eminence, Metropolitan Basilios. Our music school just recently released its first CD of Psalms chanted in English, which was a journey through Vespers to the Divine Liturgy. Copies, I'm sure, can be found in your church bookshops or can be downloaded from the Archdiocese page. As part of my responsibilities, I teach one of three classes and also lead the same chanters in a choir setting in our worship services. Our mission in this environment is to be able to prepare future chanters and choir leaders so that our most sacred worship services are chanted according to its fullness and the sacred art of Byzantine music is handed down as I have received it. I would like to conclude my podcast with a beautiful piece I read. Bringing us together is no small part of sacred music's function. Just as receiving Holy Communion together is a sacred sign, that all who partake become one body in Christ. So singing must be the expression of this same unity of hearts and minds, drawing us harmoniously together into one voice. For ultimately, it is Christ who is our song. As I was mentored and found my joyful journey and mission through Byzantine music, I encourage anyone who has a passion for this sacred art to learn and offer to God as he instructed us, to let every breath Praise the Lord. Thank you, Khuriya, and thank you to all the Khuriyas who made this series on serving the community so special. And now, let's take our weekly spiritual dose and reflect on the words of our holy Neptic Fathers with this week's Philocalic Nourishment. So take a deep breath, clear your mind, and let's begin.
A ship does not go far without water, and there is no progress whatsoever in the guarding of the intellect without watchfulness, humility, and the Jesus prayer. Saint Hesychios the priest. No one can love God consciously in his heart unless he has first feared him with all his heart. Through the action of fear, the soul is purified and as it were, made malleable, and so it becomes awakened to the action of love. St. Theodokos of Fotiki Whatever you are doing, remember that God sees all your thoughts, and then you will never sin. St. Isaiah the Solitary On June 11, in the Holy Orthodox Church, we commemorate the Apostles Barnabas and Bartholomew. On this day, the Sunday after Pentecost, we celebrate the Feast of all Saints who shone forth throughout all the world, north and south, east and west. Of all my Lord's friends, I Lord and sing the praises, and let any to come with them all be numbered. David the prophet and king who revered the beloved of God and respected them because of his great piety said in the Psalms, How precious are thy beloved unto me, O God! And the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Hebrews recounted the lives of the saints when he wrote, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Therefore, as Orthodox Christians, we honour the beloved saints of God, respecting them as keepers of God's commandments, shining examples of virtue and benefactors of humanity. We commemorate all of the Holy Ones every year on this day, as the list of saints ever increases, even though some of their names escape us. Nevertheless, we honour them for their piety and strive to imitate their good works. By the intercessions of thine Immaculate Mother, O Christ God, and all of thy saints, from the beginning of time, have mercy on us and save us, since thou alone art good and the lover of mankind. Amen. When walking into an Orthodox church, I notice Christ on the cross appears different from other Christian traditions. Is there a reason for this?
The misunderstanding persists that the Orthodox Church does not underline the value of the crucifixion because it is more concerned with Christ's resurrection. According to the Apostle Paul, Jesus our Lord was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There's plenty that could be discussed about the symbolic significance of the crucifixion since God is outside of time. God knew that he was going to die on the cross, which is why we have numerous depictions of the cross in the Old Testament. We see images of the crucifixion as Abraham gets Isaac to bring the wood on which he would be sacrificed on. There are also hymns about Moses splitting the Red Sea, about how he took his staff and made the sign of the cross with it before setting it down and separating the Red Sea. There's this continual depiction of the crucifixion, and in addition, we have the concept that man fell through a tree by consuming the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God has now saved us through the tree of the cross. So how does this affect our salvation? It is within God's providence, and he seemed to work it out so that there is this perfect story for us that we do not fully comprehend. Although with us not having too much knowledge, he put the cross in a way that we might comprehend and be aware that Christ would ultimately die for us that once he did die, we were able to look back and see it in the Old Testament. Christ's death was undoubtedly humiliating, yet he showed us great compassion and love for his own creation. With Christ dying for us, the only one who is innocent and without need of death, he chose to take everything upon himself out of pure love, mercy and grace for humanity, ensuring that once we joined him, he had already overcome death and proven his entire authority over it. For us Orthodox Christians, a cross is a cross, and we cannot deny the joy that has been brought into the whole world through the cross. However, in the Western churches, there is an overemphasis on Christ's sorrow. We must acknowledge that Christ suffered for us, that he bore our pains and bore the cross, but we are also required to deny ourselves and bear our own afflictions. When we focus on the cross as Orthodox Christians, we should not be discouraged or disturbed. Rather, we should look at it with confidence, with the love Christ demonstrated for us, the agape love. I preach Christ and him crucified, St. Paul says firmly. As Orthodox Christians, we know the ending of the tale, just as we witness the crucifixion of Christ in the film The Passion of the Christ. That should not be the end of the story. We continue to look at what happened and see Christ's resurrection. We have nothing to fear by sufferings. For this reason, when you visit the church the next time, take a moment to look around and consider the various crosses that are present, from the cross on which Christ was crucified to the empty cross and the empty tomb. Our existence as Orthodox Christians goes through the cross and into Christ's glory in his resurrection. It does not end with his crucifixion.
The following segment is a reading from the lives of the saints, or Synexarian. We have chosen to continue our collection of readings on the lives of the Ecumenical Fathers, of which we are thankful to bring a selected number of edifying accounts. Over the course of history, the Orthodox Church faced numerous heresies or false teachings, which only sought to destroy the Church. Numerous Fathers gathered together in what we know today as the Ecumenical Councils. During the time of these councils, many pious fathers fiercely defended and taught the faith until the time of their passing, thus being glorified by the Orthodox Church as saints. We hope that these Synexarians will encourage you to put on the likeness of Christ as did these wise teachers. Ecumenical Fathers, St. John of Damascus Born in the year 675 to wealthy and pious parents, St. John was raised together with St. Cosmas, who we commemorate on October the 14th. St. Cosmas was adopted by St. John's father Sergius, a man of high rank in the service of the Caliph of Damascus. Sergius ensured that his sons were taught in the sciences and in good conduct and of every virtue. St. John and St. Cosmas became spiritual children to a monk, also named Cosmas whom Sergius had freed from prison. Cosmas passed down his wealth of knowledge and wisdom to the saints, and St. John became a great philosopher and enlightener. When St. John's father died, the Caliph requested that John become his chief counsellor. St. John declined as his desire was to labour for the Lord in silence, but before long he was forced to accept the duty and was given greater authority in the city of Damascus than his father. During the iconoclasm heresy, Emperor Leo the Isaurian, the head of the war on the holy icons framed St. John of treason against the Caliph. The Caliph in his fury sentenced the saint to have his right hand removed. St. John was able to convince the Caliph to let him keep his severed right hand and that night he prayed fervently before the most holy Theodokos. Holding the severed hand in its original place, he prayed, O Lady, most pure mistress and mother of God, behold, my right hand has been cut off for the sake of the divine icons by the tyrant Leo. Whatsoever you will, you can accomplish. For through your holy prayers, the right hand of the Most High, who was incarnate of you, works numerous miracles. Wherefore come quickly to my aid, that he may heal my hand by your intercession, O Theodorkos. May I again be permitted to defend the Orthodox faith. May my hand write once more in praise of you and your son. During his sleep that night, St. John witnessed the pure Theotokos in a dream, looking down on him from her icon with warm, compassionate eyes, saying, Your hand has been restored. Do not be troubled any longer, but return to your work and labour diligently, like a swiftly writing scribe, even as you promised me. Awaking from his sleep, St. John found his hand healed with no more than a thin red line where the hand was once severed. Witnessing his miraculously healed hand, the Caliph was convinced of his innocence and restored St. John to his former role of counsellor. St. John, however, requested permission to remove himself and become a monk. After many pleadings, he began his monastic life in the monastery of St. Sabas. The abbot assigned him to a simple yet wise elder who guided him strictly down the narrow path. Among the rules that were given to him were these words, Write to no one and speak to no one of the secular sciences. Keep a discreet silence. Remember that it is not our wise men alone who teach the value of a quiet life. Pythagoras also had his disciples keep a lengthy silence. 
Pay heed to David, who said, I hold my peace, even from good, and understand that it is not profitable to speak out of season. And what gain did he derive from silence? He says, My heart grew hot within me. That is, the fire of divine love was kindled in him by reflection on God. St. John faithfully obeyed. After some time, a monk who was mourning the death of his brother began to plead with St. John that he would write him a funeral hymn as medicine for the pain he felt. When St. John's elder became aware of his disobedience, he kicked him out of his cell. St. John, hearing that he would only be allowed back after cleaning all of the lanterns of the lava, ran with joy to take on this task. After he completed the lowly task without the slightest murmur, the elder joyfully accepted the repentant saint back into his cell. Not long after his return, our most holy lady, the Theotokos, appeared to the elder and warned him against further hindering St. John from composing any hymns or writing to the world. In his old age, St. John was ordained into the priesthood by the Patriarch of Jerusalem. During the reign of Emperor Leo the Isaurian, between the years 717 to 741, a war began on the holy icons. The people who were suspicious of religious art were called iconoclasts and demanded that the churches destroyed all their holy icons. St. John wrote many letters in defense of iconography. He taught that the icons were due veneration and defended their place in the Holy Orthodox Church. He took up the sword of the word against the heretical arguments of Emperor Leo and his son Constantine Copronymus. His letters began to be circulated amongst the Orthodox faithful, demonstrating from the traditions of the Church Fathers that it is right to honour the sacred images. Because Damascus was outside the jurisdiction of the Emperor, Leo devised a plan to end St. John. He confiscated one of St. John's letters and had his scribes copy his handwriting to craft a letter to the Caliph. The falsified letter was an open treason which resulted in the removal of St. John's hand as mentioned earlier. St. John has made many contributions to the Orthodox Church. The miraculous recovery of his hand has led to a special icon of the Theotokos being adorned in our church. You can see the Holy Mother of God and a third hand written on the icon to call to remembrance St. John's once removed hand that the Theotokos restored. The icon is called the Holy Mother of God of the Three Hands. The funeral hymn that St. John wrote for the monk in mourning has entered into the church's memorial service and are some of the most beautiful funeral hymns in the memorial service. St. John has also given the church the dearly loved Paschal Canon. He is even credited for writing the Octoichos, which is the eight-tone rotation which we follow in the church to this day. Because St. John lived as the counsellor to the Muslim Caliph, he had the opportunity to learn their teachings firsthand and was able to write one of the first refutations against their errors with a solid understanding of their beliefs. He wrote many festal homilies, prayers and lives of a number of the saints. He denounced the heretics illustrating the dogmas of the true faith and the mystery of theology. St. John reposed in peace in the year 760, 27 years before the Seventh Ecumenical Council which called an end to the iconoclasm heresy. We celebrate his memory on December the 4th. A Politikion of St. John Damascus You are a guide of orthodoxy, a teacher of piety and modesty, a luminary of the world, the God-inspired pride of monastics. O wise John, you have enlightened everyone by your teachings. You are the harp of the Spirit. Intercede to Christ our God for the salvation of our souls.
Thank you again for tuning in to another installment of The Divine Lantern, and in particular, this series. For all the latest news and updates about our Archdiocese, please visit our website, www.antiochian.org.au. And if you'd like your question answered throughout the podcast, please shoot it through as a voice memo to tdl at antiochian.org.au. Have a blessed day, and we hope to catch you next week.